Welcome to the New Books Network. I came across a book on witchcraft. And because I was really curious about supernatural things, this really struck me as something I wanted to spend time on. And so I checked out the book and I read it cover to cover. And I started practicing witchcraft when I was about 15. She was a teenage witch, but now she's a Dominican. Sister Maria Catherine O.P., a teacher of theology and literature, talks to me about her journey. And we also discuss her favorite movie, Babette's Feast, on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Adinitz, and I get to ask interesting people who've thought about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this format and relationship and dialogue and back and forth may help us approach the truth and have a really good time doing it. Should you want to take the conversation a step further, please email me at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Today, I have the great pleasure of talking to Sister Maria Catherine, OP. She's from the great state of Texas. After graduating from the University of Texas at Austin, she worked in various industries, but mainly banking and administration, before entering the convent. She's a published author in the Catholic San Francisco, the Imaginative Conservative, and Homiletic and Pastoral Review. Today, Sister Maria Catherine teaches English and theology at J. Sarah Catholic High School in Southern California. She loves cooking and playing ultimate frisbee with her sisters. (laughs) (laughs) So welcome, Sister Maria Catherine. Thank you so much, Chris, for this invitation. I'm excited to get to chat with you. It's my great honor. And I have a joke to share with you that I got from Ronald Reagan. I think it'll it'll fit. Uh, Reagan said he has a hard time understanding atheists. And one thing he want, has always wanted to do is to invite some atheists over to the White House to have a splendid feast of many dishes and many courses. And finally, ask them whether they believe there was a cook. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good one. And I think it just goes straight to uh, our topic today, which is not only your very interesting and varied life, but uh, your favorite movie, which is Babette's Feast. Oh, yes. <laughs> An easy one to start with. So tell us about your uh, journey uh, back to the Catholic Church or from the Catholic Church or how you got to, how did you get to be a Dominican sister in Southern California? Wow, that is a long and there's it was a long and varied road to get here, but it actually began in my childhood. I was actually baptized a Catholic, but was not raised one. When I was a kid, my mother died and she had been a very faithful Catholic as far as I know, really loved Our Lady. But she died when I was so young, I was left really wondering a lot about her faith. And so when I was going through my childhood, my, uh, my father remarried <clears throat> after my mother had died. And my stepmother is Presbyterian, so I was actually raised Presbyterian and had no contact with the Catholic Church. But when I was going through high school, I was asking a lot of those big questions about life. I had the privilege of going to a magnet high school for the performing arts in Houston and was studying acting and theater and studying art was really forcing me to ask the hard questions of life. What is my life about? And I wanted to know about the supernatural world. So what's a, what's a girl to do when she's bored during the summer after her freshman year of high school, but mm-hmm. to go to the public library 
And unfortunately, when I was scoping out the religion and philosophy section, I came across a book on witchcraft. And because I was really curious about supernatural things, this really struck me as something I wanted to spend time on. And so I checked out the book and I read it cover to cover. And I started practicing witchcraft when I was about 15. And I started doing that in secret without my parents' knowledge. And unfortunately, when I look out at our culture today, I see a lot of the things that I was doing in secret in high school are now very mainstream. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, have you noticed that as well, just kind of pagan practices coming to the fore? Very, very much. And I also have children in my, in my school who say that they are witches or that their parents are witches. Mm. Uh, and I also, when I was a teenager, I remember doing similar things, reading about witchcraft or getting these teeny tiny booklets by the checkout line in the supermarket that were like, how do you, can you use runes or oh, um, tarot wow. cards? And I remember buying tarot cards and my brother and I tried to make a Ouija board, but we made it at home out of, <laughs> and it was just, it wasn't smooth. So it didn't really work. And so we didn't do it. Uh, <laughs> I didn't want to buy one. <laughs> I'm, in a way, I'm glad that didn't work out for glad you. Glad it didn't. So I don't know if these are, you know, parlor tricks or if they really, um, the you know, dark forces are present in all of this, or it runs the whole gamut from nothing to something. Um, mm. But yes, I, I so I I, don't, I think I escaped from any long-term negative influences, but I have no idea. Also, <laughs> well, it's it's interesting that you say that because I also maybe just to tell you a little bit more of my story. Yeah. Um, but, and we can kind of circle back to that. But I, I'm really grateful that even though I was practicing witchcraft, as I went through high school, I couldn't find a lot of people who were wanting to do this with me. So I was very solitary in my own practice. But uh, when I got to college, I was still wondering what my life was about and still trying to find, I was really trying to find God. I, I didn't mm -hmm. know that that's what it was. And um, I stumbled upon salsa dancing and I started salsa dancing mm -hmm. near my university and encountered a wonderful man who really ev evangelized me. He's still now one of my closest friends and just started telling me I already knew about scripture. I had been I had been raised a Presbyterian and we had gone to church pretty much till I was 13. So I was one of those people who thought I knew who Christ was, but I needed to be re-evangelized. I needed to have my imagination sparked and inspired. And he really did that for me by telling me the truth, actually about witchcraft and about other things like it. And then also I, I saw the way that he lived his life. His name is Michael. Mm -hmm. And I just saw how free he was and how much he wanted to grab life by the horns, just like I did. But he was doing it with God instead of trying to defy God, which I began to realize I was actually doing. So um, when I think back to uh, what I was trying to do with practicing witchcraft, like you mentioned for yourself, Ouija boards and tarot cards, and I was certainly doing those things. I was um, pretty much, I was willing to try anything I could get my hands on. Yeah. And, and as I discovered more about the Catholic faith, I discovered that the root of, of my desires in practicing witchcraft was to control my life. And because there were things and there were wounds in my heart that really needed to be healed. And Michael and other men and women like him who were practicing the Catholic faith started to show me the path back to God and to the healing that I truly wanted. And in the midst of that, I learned a lot about sacramentals, 
like holy water and exercised oil and salt. And I mean, personally, I bless myself with holy water every night. That's a practice that the sisters and I have. Mm-hmm. And so when I, be- when I made the decision to become a Catholic, of course, I went to confession and I confessed all those things that I'd been doing. But as the years have gone by, I've I've noticed because of the things I was practicing, there were a lot of residual effects, health problems. I had a lot of trouble sleeping in the past. And I started to realize that they weren't just um, explained away by natural means, that I had involved myself a little bit too much in this realm, and there were serious consequences. So I'm grateful to the church and to all the priests who've helped me because now I look at my students and, um, and they're, I mean, you had posed the question a few minutes ago, is this really something that has lasting effects? Um, because in our culture, if, if someone commits a sin and doesn't see that there's an immediate consequence, they automatically think, well, this must be okay, or God must not care, or God must not exist. And and I've just found that not to be true in my own life, that God really does care, and that we really do do damage to ourselves and to other people by persisting in these practices. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And I've had this conversation a lot with a dear friend of mine because I uh, a few weeks ago, I, I interviewed an exorcist, and w- that was mm-hmm. really interesting because of all the different ways that um, different kind of spirits, especially evil ones, mess with humans, um, and all the sort of ways that he's like, well, here's a woman who is possessed, and she's from Nebraska, and suddenly she's speaking old church Slavonic. And so like, okay, that's, Ooh. she did not, she did not learn that. She did not pick that up, you know, as, as a kid in, in her high school. She, the, so there's a lot of proof in the, in, in that sort of thing for the person who doubts whether such a thing exists. Um, and I, and one of the pieces of advice he had was like, don't dabble in occult things because every time you invite something like that into your life, who knows, maybe the door is, is open and nothing comes in, or maybe a legion of enemies comes in. Yes. Yeah, that's really sound advice, yeah. especially from from someone who's seeing that regularly. Yeah. Um, and I can I can definitely say for myself, I'm so grateful that with all the doors to the demonic that I opened, that I had opened in my past, I, I never struggled with possession. But it did help me, to, as I've recovered from this, it's helped me to see how all of us, or at least Americans in general, are tempted to open those doors. Um so I hope that my experience can help others. Yeah. And and I'm all all the more grateful to have discovered the riches of our faith and the the friendship of the saints mm-hmm. and a deep love for our lady and the sacraments, which have really gotten me through. Yeah, and there's also part of it where as a teenager you're sort of in a rebellious place anyway, just testing out your limits. Um, oh yes. So I think that that's why our maybe why our students are doing this though though I don't know I do think it's a different generation and I don't really un- understand them and I, I do remember uh, you know um, like just just for like when you're a teenager and you're interested in sex well when we were kids you really had to like ask people and, and find out how. but <laughs> now with their iPhones like they there is no kind of depravity and uh, you know any kind of dark use of another human being that they cannot bring up on their phones in a second so it's it's just a different generation and a different time and it's hard guessing as a middle-aged person looking at these kids 
what what they what they're up against and what they've already seen. You know, it's, I have no idea. I think you've raised a good point. I often look out at my students um, and think about the responses that they're giving and realize that they're really asking the question, has everything I've been taught really true? Is that, you know, mm-hmm. all this stuff about church, is that really true? And, and actually, in my own experience, I remember going back to my high school to one of the teachers I admired most and with great trepidation telling her that I'd made the decision to become Catholic. And I, I didn't really know what she was going to say. And I rem- I'll never forget her response because it really surprised me. But she said, yeah, of course, of course you're doing this because all that stuff that you learned about church from your parents, there's a point in your life where you realize it's actually true. <laughs> and I, I was so comforted by her response to that. Um, so I hope that that for anybody out there who is exploring these other things, that they have the grace from God to go back and to see that what he's taught is really true. Yeah. So when I, I remember from the little reading I did about witchcraft, it was all about like, here's a spell that will help you do this. And it's all mm-hmm. about getting some kind of assistance. You know, it could be you are... I don't know, trying to get revenge or trying to get somebody to fall in love with you or mm-hmm. I don't know what mm-hmm. I don't really remember. It's been did you uh, for you, is this just like a hobby that you realize this is stupid and vain <laughs> or did you uh, like what did it look like for you for those few years when you were for those few years, I. I definitely engaged in the things that you're talking about, like the specific spells, or I worked a lot with crystals and candles and spells. And like I said previously, it really was out of a desire to control my life. But maybe what was a little bit different for me is that I was also looking for a worldview. Mm -hmm. Our culture says that nothing matters. We live in this postmodern culture um, that really thinks that God doesn't matter even human life doesn't matter. And that we have to, it's so deconstructed that we have to decide what matters in our life and what gives meaning. Just to give you an example, there's such a rich tradition. I mean, Chris, I know you're from Poland, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. So in Poland, do you have a tradition of celebrating your name day? Oh, yes. Yes, I do. So, so really rich tradition where children are named after a saint and you celebrate that saint's feast day. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the sisters at the school where I teach um, in years past had just mentioned to a colleague who's not a Catholic and just reached out to him and said, hey, today is your feast day. Today is the feast day of the saint. I don't want to say the name in sure. case it gives it away, but um, th- today is the feast day of the saint that you're, you're named after, even though I know you're not a Catholic and this is not someone you maybe have a devotion to. And he looked at her and he was so puzzled and he mentioned how someone online had just assigned days of the year to celebrate conventional names in our culture. And he was so excited because the name that he has was being celebrated in a few weeks and he totally missed the point. (laughs) In fact, in fact, he actually reinvented the wheel. Like someone else has gone and recreated this tradition. That's totally without meaning and purpose. Someone just decided that April 2nd would be, you know, a day where we celebrate the name Sarah, for instance, but totally missed the rich tradition of all the people who've been named after him and after this saint. So I see in our culture that desire to create meaning 
And I was definitely looking for that as a high schooler. Yeah. No, and then, then also to test where, like you can sort of test empirically. Aha, I cast a spell and nothing happened. Or I cast a spell and it, and it did happen. And it's hard to test our faith because we do things, but we don't know. We, you know, we sort of feel that God has heard us. We can feel a voice. I've heard a voice in the, you know, mm. late at night. But then if I try to tell you about it, you might, I mean, you would believe me. But if I told another person about it, they would say like, <laughs> oh, well, you know, you're half asleep. It's kind of a dream. You had, you know, an auditory hallucination, you know, and, and who knows? And sometimes our prayers are answered exactly the way we hope. And sometimes they're answered in very different ways over very long periods of times. And sometimes they're heard, but not answered to in any way that we would want. Mm-hmm. There, yes, I I think also what's hidden underneath what you're saying is we want certainty, yeah. certainty that this is the voice we heard in our head is really from God. And some people who are doubting that or who don't have a relationship with God have been taught that they can't be certain about anything, that nothing is trustworthy. But our faith tells us that God is trustworthy and that the things he has given us are real and tangible and that the spiritual life, even though, um, I don't know, Chris, are you a football fan? No, I'm sorry. I don't know anything about football. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not. And I don't know that this applies. Do you like um, soccer? Same thing. Uh, my bro- my son loves soccer, so he and I watch it. But uh, a little bit, he- but he's not 10, so much. But yeah. <laughs> well, there's maybe this will be helpful for some of your listeners. But sure. If they are football players or or interested in the sport, when you're looking at a player, you're looking not just at the skills that that player has, but also what are called the intangibles, the things that matter about how they get along with their teammates, mm-hmm. about what they're able, um, about their personal character, and just other things that literally are not tangible. They're not as concrete, but they also matter. They have equal weight. So you can have somebody who has a lot of technical skill, but if they're not able to get along with the team or if they're not, um, if they don't have a good character about them, it's going to be very hard for them to succeed in any professional game. So in some ways, applying that to the spiritual life, Our culture only wants to see what's empirically verifiable, like what you just said. But there are also all these other things about the spiritual life that are intangible, but they're just as real. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And um, I should have said that I did watch... Friday Night Lights with my wife, <laughs> so I I hear what you, I like I understand I understand that part of Texas culture and um, exactly like what's a what's a good member of the team and what is a, just sort of like a self interested showboating member of the team and and that kind of thing. Mm, yeah, definitely. So let's talk about the state of the youth today. Uh, you you teach kids theology and English. How do you teach them? Given the digital world with all its good and bad and ugly aspects that we've sort of touched upon here, you, what are you finding speaks to their great thirst for meaning and knowledge? You know, what uh, you're asking a lot of really good questions. Um, this, is, this is something I'm constantly thinking about. I've learned in my own life, uh, I used to love reading when I was a kid and high school really crushed that desire. <laughs> and I look out at my students and, you know, they're interested in going to the beach and they're interested in playing football or lacrosse or volleyball or, or whatever things they have going on outside of school. And reading is not exactly at the top of their list. And in a world where everything is online, it's hard to sell the, the beauty of reading. 
and the gifts that reading is. Just a few weeks ago, I was actually, I had a Zoom guest speaker in my class, Dr. Deal Hudson, who is incredible. Uh, Feel free to look him up. He's a great thinker, a great convert to the faith. And his parting words of advice to my students, which he said he did not expect that they would take. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's the way to get them to do it. It's like, I don't think you're going to do this, but here's some grandfatherly advice. He said, read books because they make you, they shape you into the kind of person you want to be. And, and again, that kind of speaks to the intangibles we were talking about earlier. My students don't realize that I can just because of my age and experience and also from the books that I've read, I can look at their lives and tell them, gosh, there's really something empty here. You really want something to fill this, but the things that you're using, like your iPhone or Instagram or whatever, to fill your time are actually not all that worthwhile. But reading Huck Finn and reading The Scarlet Letter and um, some of my old favorites, like Kristen Lovren's Daughter or um, A Town Like Alice, like these are books that shape you from the inside. And they actually influence the way you talk. They influence your character. Um, One of my best English professors always said that you become what you think about when you're by yourself. And so I've actually made this into a little sign in my classroom, like you become what you think about. And so then the question becomes is what are you thinking about? Mm -hmm. Are you thinking about um, the things that matter, the intangibles of your life and, and those of your friends and books do that? But I don't, I don't know, Chris, it's a hard, it's a hard sell. It's a with hard the internet. sell. It's, it's a really hard, hard sell. sell. Even, even for us, you know, like I, I have, I don't, I leave the phone and the computer in the kitchen most of the time. And when I, you know, when I head off to bed, I, I read a book, but I, I, even on the weekend, just to like sit outside and read a book, there's so many little tiny intrusive distractions, notifications, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. It's hard for me as a middle-aged person who knows better, let alone an impulsive teenager who. Who, I don't know what they're getting. You know, they're getting, oh, look at these people who liked my picture of myself. You know, mm. how many other people like this picture I took of myself? <laughs> One way. So I, I don't have I don't have a good answer to this question. And and this is one that I'm going to I continue to think about and talk about with my colleagues. And of course, now in the past four months, we have the new advent of chat GPT, which uh-huh. is changing things rapidly, um, which is unfortunately going to date our conversation pretty quickly. Um, Because I imagine, I imagine the things that we face now with that are going to be very different in August. Um, I think you're right. There've already been like three or four iterations just of the detection software that I'm using on my students' writing. What's the one? You, I use something called Zero GPT. What's yours? Yes, that's mine. Okay, good. That's why it's, <laughs> yeah, no, I we're ready to pay for the subscription. Bring yeah. it on. Bring it yeah. on. Um, I think, but I think the answer, the, the more I think about this, and I do not want to be down on technology. I think technology is a great thing. Like for instance, we're doing a podcast now and I'm in That's Southern true. California and you're in Northern California and here we are having this great conversation. Yeah. Um, technology brings us so many good things that the classroom can benefit from, but it also shatters the sacramental worldview Yeah. in just the way that you described. Learning is meant to be a tool for contemplation. And if the, the habits of the mind have not been built for sustained focus, then 
that's going to ru- that ruins all of our spiritual lives. Mine, mine included. Yeah. By the way, I I have to reflect on this too, especially as a consecrated religious. Yeah. No, that's true. If I, it's very easy for me to, if I'm praying the rosary, it's easy for me to play a YouTube video of the rosary as I walk my dog at night, and I am praying the rosary. I really am. I've got a rosary in my hand, but I'm also multitasking. Right. Yeah. I'm not sitting yeah. in a quiet space. I'm um, I'm also taking care of the dog well let's go back a couple of centuries because your favorite movie is babette's feast oh, yes. uh, and when we first started emailing i was like i've i've heard of it but i didn't know what it was and then i you know i watched it this last week i love this movie and i'd like you to tell our our listeners uh why you love it and and so on babette's feast i actually first watched when i was when i had entered the convent And it won Best Foreign Film, I think in 1987. So it's a pretty old film. I've tried showing it to students who immediately say, ew, this is so old. The effects are so bad and dated, (laughs) which which I'm sure is true. Um, But what I love about the movie is there's a clear Christ figure, which is Babette. And she gives... She gives without counting the cost. She gives without anybody knowing the price that she's paid, quite literally, until the end of the film. And it's just, it, it, um, it is always an examination of conscience for me when I'm able to watch it, that Babette is juxtaposed these two older spinster Protestant sisters who are doing all these good works. They're living a little bit by the book, so to speak, the Christian Mm -hmm. life. They're doing all the things that are exactly what one would hope Christians would do. But they don't, their spirit is very sterile. They've never married, they've never had children, and they give to everyone else. But it seems like their work has not actually borne spiritual fruit. And that's where Babette comes in and she reimagines the Christian life for them in a way that's very subtle. It doesn't uh, hit you over the head. I love that about the film. And it, incorpor- it, it shows the value of beauty in, um, in conversion. And that's what I love about it. So it's, an, it's a little Danish village in the 19th century. And they are two, and uh, they're two sisters. And their father was a some kind of a pastor, a Lutheran pastor, presumably. And mm-hmm. they, in this village, he was everybody sort of uh, congregated around him and his two daughters, and they would meet in their house. It's a very small community. And then he dies. But when they, when they were young, you know, they had different suitors and gentlemen callers, and all the time he he sort of kept them for himself. It's like, nope, these girls have to help me in my ministry there, and they sort of go along with that. And the, both of the, the suitors, one of them is a Swedish officer and the other one was, is a French uh, opera singer. They, they lose patience and they leave. And the girls mm-hmm. don't seem too, too upset about that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah, but uh, I, I disagree about the effects because I think the, the, the genius of, of, the directional, of the direction of this movie is that the same young actresses play the old people too. And they're really good. Like the makeup is good. And especially the way they move, you know, they, they move like older ladies. But you know that underneath there, there's like a, you know, a 28-year-old actress or whatever playing this 50, then 60, then 70-year-old lady. Um, and to me, there's something magical about that choice of, of uh, a filmmaking sleight of hand where I kind of imagine that in heaven, 
we're we are all these ageless bodies like i'll be there my parents will be there my grandparents will be there my great-grandparents will be there then my kids and great grandkids and we'll all sort of be the same age and i you know i have no idea what age that is <sighs> but what is the perfected body after the resurrection is it everybody's 25 everybody's 35 uh mm. but i think they kind of they kind of got at that so um they're living there and along comes babette and who's who's babette babette is a french a French immigre. She has fled the Franco-Prussian War. It sounds like, and she uh, she just needs a place to live, and she couldn't live in France anymore. And they don't really know much about her background in the beginning of the story. And I'm wondering if I should even give it away. Well, let's do this. If the listeners would like to go watch this movie, this is a great place to pause and then yes. continue. Okay. <laughs> That's a good one. So it's, a, it's, and it's, it's quite humorous that this whole time Babette lives with them for what, like 10, 15 years? I think it's 15 years. 15 years. And she's doing these very menial tasks. She is cleaning, she's washing the windows, and she's doing their cooking. And yeah. they've asked her to cook this, ab- I mean, it looks revolting <laughs> what they're eating. It's like this dried fish and bread soup. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it just, it looks awful. And, um, but at the very end, part of her gift is to make a French dinner for them. Yeah, she's won the lottery is what she She's won won the lottery. She's won 10,000 francs. And she wants to make this wonderful, wonderful, you know, seven, eight course French dinner for them in gratitude for all they've done for her. And when she cooks, the irony is that even though she's lived with them all this time, these Protestant ladies absolutely turn their noses up at this French cooking, thinking that this is demonic, like mm-hmm. to eat good food that is French and with the right matching wine is somehow against God. But at the end of this dinner, it becomes very clear that she was a gourmet French cook at the best restaurant in Paris. And here she's been making their, you know, potato, fish, goulash, whatever, very humbly, very humbly. Um, But here, here they've had this gourmet cook in their house, the whole, I mean, they could have been eating so well, Chris. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's true. No, they, they have this attitude that things that are delicious are sinful because they're so luxurious and sensuous um, and of course, it's France, so everything is uh, Catholic, which means it's ornate, and there's statues and incense and music and all these sort of things that uh, Martin Luther did away with. It's like we like things simple. We live by the sea. We dress in plain clothes. We, you know, mm. we, we the same soup, which is made of beer and bread. It's like oh, beer and bread. <laughs> yes. Oh. oh. <laughs> they melt bread inside some beer, and then it's soup. <laughs> oh my gosh! It comes out as yeah. But but the other thing is like she's fleeing from some general whose name I looked up. I can't. Oh. It's escaping now. General Galifet, who yes. uh, suppressed the Paris Commune. But then later on, it comes out something like that. That same general was like her number one fan when she had this restaurant. Like he didn't realize who she was, and she was the head chef, which is very unusual for a woman in the 19th century to be the oh, my you know goodness. the chef yes. de cuisine at at this restaurant called Cafe Anglais. Oh um, yes, and so she—it's really interesting that her enemy and her her supporter were the same guy. It was you know kind of pharisaical, right? We here we are praising God but persecuting him when he appears among us. Mm. Um, That's a keen insight. Yeah. So yeah. to get so all the Puritans have decided 
we are not we're going to pretend we're going to pretend that this tastes bad or we're going to pretend it's it's quite humorous that um you know every the climax of the movie is this feast that she's prepared for for these two old spinsters and their congregation of like eight other people and they all come over and sit down at this dinner and make this pact that they are not going to enjoy the food and that they are not going to compliment the cook or acknowledge in any way how how good the meal is and it's so interesting the way this plays out because uh i'm really grateful you looked up his name general lohenheim lohenhelm yeah 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 lohenhelm Helm or Helm. Helm. I'll let yeah. you. I'll let you pronounce the Swedish. <laughs> but an old, um, an old flame of one of the sisters has returned to kind of rekindle his love for the piety that he learned from her father. And he's there for this dinner, and he's the one outsider, mm-hmm. and he's the one who's not a part of this pact, and he's the one who's lived the most worldly life, and who kind of rejected the teachings of these two sisters, older father. Um, But he's the one who actually is this kind of catalyst for conversion for the rest of them. So they, they sit down to this meal, you know, the eight or 10 of them who've agreed not to enjoy it, certainly try not to say anything. But what happens is the food spurs their conversation. And they begin to talk about their memories of the old pastor who started their sect. And they start to have these healing moments among each other. They, um, it sounds like there's a lot of bickering between them. Mm-hmm. And they start to, even though they will not compliment the meal, it's like the grace that's in the meal starts to affect them. What did you think about that, Chris? Uh, for me, he was... Well, um, a lot of things I thought about. Like, I loved his return because when he was a young fellow sort of um, pretending to the hand of this daughter and he was trying to, like, hang around so that he could date her and then marry her, like, he didn't, he seemed kind of foppish and like another handsome officer. And same thing with the opera singer who was kind of a comic figure. But as mm-hmm. old men, I, I really admired them. The opera singer, like he has realized what's important. It's not fame. It's the important things in, in life. And likewise, the Swedish officer, he's, he's you know, very successful. He's a general in the Swedish army, but he thinks it's all vanity. And that he's, mm. you know, by letting this girl slip through his fingers, she never like kicked him out. He just lost patience and left. And he should have just stuck around another year, right? Or, or mm-hmm. whatever. Maybe, maybe he would have been able to marry her. He deeply... He deeply regrets that choice of his youth, as you know. I, I think we all we all do regret usually the things we fail to do rather than the things we have done. And he gives the speech at the end, um, quoting Psalm eighty-five: "Mercy and truth have met together; righteousness and bliss will kiss." So, mercy and truth, which I sort of take like the mercy is the grace of of the, the of um, it's just, yeah, the grace of just having really good food and, and a lot of, like, they're drinking a lot of wine. They're drinking a lot of really good wine. <laughs> they are. And so they have sort of this glow of, of uh, conviviality to them, and they all start to forgive each other. And he gets up, he gives a talk, and his talk is very short, and I wrote down a couple sentences of it. He says, our choice is of no importance. The moment comes when our eyes are opened and we see and realize that grace is infinite, We need only await it with confidence and acknowledge it with gratitude. Grace makes no condition. And see, 
that which we have chosen is given to us, and that which we have refused is also granted to us. Which, to me, sounds a lot like sort of mysticism, and that, that God is love, and he has no interest in punishing you for your short-sightedness and your childish ways. Um, and everybody is absolved, you know, of all their, oh, I stole this lumber, or oh, I was gossiping about you, or all that stuff sort of gets washed away, and it feels like a little bit of, like a little embassy of heaven at their table. What a beautiful way to describe that. Yes, his speech is so poignant that um, grace makes no conditions, that we don't have to be worthy of it. Um, You know, actually, did you know, I don't know if you looked up, this movie is based on a short story. I saw that. I haven't read it. It's it's by the... Oh, I'm blanking, but, you know, Out of Africa. Uh, Karen. Yeah, yeah. It's yes. the woman who wrote Out of Africa. Her her pen name is Isaac Dennison, but she was an atheist. Oh, wow. And I just, and I, I'm just hearing, hearing the, and recalling that, that little speech of, of the Swedish officer. And it's like, how did she capture that? But that's exactly, I mean, wouldn't every Christian want to live this way that grace makes no conditions and that we only we need only weight it with confidence and acknowledge it with gratitude. Yeah, that, yeah. That it's not it's not about the rules. It's about it's about being open and vulnerable to God, who acts upon us and gives us all that we desire, and even the things that we refused in the past. Yeah. No. And just the just the abundance the. Uh, the embarrassment of riches that God chooses to shower upon us, whether we deserve it or not, um, mm. usually not. Usually uh, not. You know, <laughs> yes. it's like being yeah. a kid and having a really beneficent and loving parent who who just, you know, you're you're doing you're making the same mistakes. You're you're not doing your homework. You're not you're you're picking your nose. You're whatever you're doing. <laughs> it's like they're there. Get back on your feet. They're there. You know, it's uh, unlike the Puritans who just. They have such a negative zero, like a game of subtraction, whereas this is definitely, um, like they even have this weird line where they, when they're promising not to notice the, the quality of the food, they're saying it's going to be like the wedding at Cana. And I was like, what do they mean? Like at the wedding at Cana? Mean? Yeah. Is this, she says like, it's going to be like um, the wedding of Cana, the food won't matter. <laughs> and it, it's true, but the wedding of Cana is really about like, oh, they're out of wine. So I'm going to make them. <laughs> 160 gallons of wine or something (laughs) right they totally miss the boat yeah they miss the point and they they miss how um how lavish the gift is by the quantity of the wine that christ makes at the wedding and then i mean and this also comes out at the end the very very end when both um both the sisters are expecting that now that Babette has won the lottery, that she's she's going to leave them because she doesn't need to work for them anymore now that she's independently wealthy. And she reveals that the feast she's just made for them costs 10,000 francs. Yeah. And it, what a lavish gift. Yeah. And, and, and the two sisters are absolutely mortified, mortified that she has spent this on them but also just to see that um, that uh, you know they in the movie they talk about it in terms of art that Babette is an artist 
but that there's something about art. And I would also say grace that's bottomless. Like it's diffusive of itself. You don't, um, you don't lessen what you have by giving some of it away. Mm. And, and that also is another great gift of the movie is just seeing how grace is bottomless and the gift of God's love is really bottomless. I think that's, I think that's the perfect conclusion. I know you have to go teach in three minutes or something. <laughs> wow, you are really good. <laughs> yeah. Um, would you like to Would you like to say a, a blessing for our listeners as as we sure. close? Sure. Yeah. Let's just end this with a prayer. Okay. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, I just lift up to you all of those who are listening to this podcast right now, and all of those who will listen in the future. We just ask you to bless us so that we can come to the eternal wedding feast of the Lamb in heaven with you forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me, for you, and hail, hail the Word made flesh, the babe, the Son of Chris Idiots and Sister Maria Catherine recorded this conversation, episode 55, on Monday, April 3rd, 2023. It was Holy Monday, and also the feast day of St. Richard of Chichester, the 13th century bishop who supported the Dominicans. To him is ascribed the popular prayer, Thanks be to thee, my Lord Jesus Christ, for all the benefits thou hast given me, for all the pains and insults thou hast borne for me. O most merciful Redeemer, friend and brother, may I know thee more clearly love thee more dearly, follow thee more nearly. Amen. The music for our program comes from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band. Check them out at www.gscoasterband.com. Our logo, the image of the dog, comes from a window in a Spanish monastery at Santo Domingo de Silos, which the Dominican friars of England, Scotland, and Wales kindly let me take from their website, www.english.op.org. I'm Chris Odinitz. Thank you so much for listening. Email me at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. I answer every email. I look forward to talking with you next time. This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds God and angels sing.